listener. Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I mean, not really an expert, but I feel like more and more electric vehicles is just going to put a strain on the grid. Like, where are we going to get that power from in the future? Whether you're a Nissan Leaf with a 40 kilowatt hour battery or a Porsche Taycan Turbo S with a 93 kilowatt hour battery, more EVs on the road means more batteries needing power, which begs the question, can the grid cope? Yeah, what happens if everyone plugs all their electric vehicles in at the same time? Like, what happens if the grid gets overloaded? What are we going to do about that? We all know how frustrating it is when you plug in an extra appliance at home and then suddenly the circuit breaks and you're left in the dark, possibly with wet hair. (laughs) So what happens when you have thousands of EVs plugged into the same system? It's a question the industry, manufacturers and now us are really trying to answer. Hi everybody, Greg Rust and Nadine Armstrong with you for another edition of What's Under the Bonnet, the electric car podcast, which is really getting some traction too. Thank you to the auto industry and car company execs who have come on so far. Uh, We've had a great reaction as well to New South Wales Minister Matt Keane, who joined us on the last episode. That's the thing about NADS, lots of horsepower when she calls Parliament House, they <laughs> that's answer. A, that's way too many puns already, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a big thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared and given the pot a rating too. We really appreciate that. The FCAI figures for February 2023, for example, show a massive increase in battery electric vehicles purchased compared to February last year. So it's on the uptake. It's something we need to learn about and I'm very much enjoying that side of this project. Now, in just the past few weeks, we were actually in Tasmania together at the Simmons Plains Circuit, where you were very hands-on with the Motorsport Australia Girls on Track program. What was it? 60 or so students on the day, I think. Yeah, that program is fantastic. Um, yeah, and Simmons Plains, it was such a buzz. It's always great to get girls trackside because it really is a different vibe. Well done. I don't know about you, but today's episode is one that I've actually been really looking forward to. Don't get me wrong. I love talking about all the cool EV tech and innovations. But today, we're going to be stepping outside the vehicle to some degree and looking at the the framework that basically makes electric vehicles possible, what we affectionately call the grid. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. When we talk about the grid, we're talking about the infrastructure that supports electricity production and supply. Now, energy storage, especially for renewable energy, has always been a tricky part of the puzzle. But EVs may just be the missing piece. With the announcement of the first bi-directional chargers in Australia, Tim Clark from Mitsubishi Motors will be joining us later to talk about that. Now, one thing, if you haven't listened to the pod before, we have a really fun segment called Meet an ev And today, not only is this person kind of the brand new owner of a BMW i4, He's also the CFO for City Power, Power Core and United Energy. So he actually knows a thing or two about the grid as well. But first, we're going to be talking to another industry expert who's had more than three decades of experience at AGL and who's now the CEO of Transgrid. Brett Redman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Nadine. Well, our theme for this episode is can the grid cope? And we know this is a big one and with many moving parts, and it's probably fair to say that unless you work in the industry, that few of us 
fully understand the complexities of, you know, energy or grid management. So maybe if you could sort of start by helping us understand and explain Transgrid's role in the delivery of electricity in Australia, sort of from generation to transmission, and then who goes on to distribute it. Certainly. So the energy market, or particularly the electricity market, is broken up into broadly three parts, retail, generation, and in-between network. Network is broken up into two parts. One is distributors or distribution. Think of that like your local roads. And the other is transmission, which is us. Think of that as your big highways and freeways. Transgrid is the transmission company in New South Wales. So when you see those really big 50 to 70 metre steel towers yes. with big, thick cables, that's us providing the backbone of the grid. Okay, okay, yeah. So there, there are sort of multiple people involved in getting it into ultimately someone's home. Yes, yeah. So we'll we'll connect from the distributors in the local areas. We'll connect them into other regions as well as we'll connect the big big generation sources like your wind farms, your solar farms, and still quite a lot of coal and the like. Um, we connect those directly into the superhighways, if you like, and then from there we step down into distribution and that's where EVs start to plug in and start to take their power. The question, can the grid cope is kind of broad to say the least. Can you begin by explaining to us the factors that currently impact demands on our grid? So think about the grid and and I'll particularly focus on transmission, but the grid was originally designed to take power from where it was produced typically in coal areas, so with coal-fired generation from a handful of sources into the big demand centres, typically the cities. Big macro thing going on right now, of course, with energy transition is the coal-fired power stations, the thermal power stations are starting to close down. So we have to now connect new regions where big grid-scale wind and solar is being connected. So that's at the big end. And then also at a more local end, so the distributors also have to manage energy being produced in a million homes, millions of homes with solar panels and the like. So the grid is becoming a lot more complicated from being a very simple In a state like New South Wales, there might have been, say, 20 major sites energy was being produced and then shipped around the state to now thousands and in the future tens of thousands of sites at a grid scale level and at a local level in a a distributor way. Every house is becoming its own generator with a solar panel on the roof. Soon everybody will also have storage. And so the complexity of all of that, and, and EVs are coming into the middle of this complexity where we're going from a very small one-way set of traffic from small number of generators to many homes and businesses to a future where we have many, many generators and every home and business can be a generator. Every customer can be a, a user as they always have been. In between, they can store for themselves and we can store at grid scale. EVs are coming into the middle of what is a very complicated energy management challenge in managing the grid, keeping it stable, keeping everyone supplied when they need to be supplied at a cost that's very manageable. So that sort of leads me to what plugging in a bunch of electric vehicles will do to supply. The way to sort of think about it is how solar has grown up over the last 10 or 20 years. So I think most people are familiar with solar now, whereas 20 years ago, it was a bit like EV. It was a very bespoke, not too many people had it. You didn't really notice it going on, whereas today it's omnipresent. So solar began as a very light touch thing. You didn't really notice it in a grid management sense. It was pretty simple to get connected and and to, to manage. Whereas today, solar, certainly in the very sunny parts of the day, can take up a very large amount of 
the generation that's being produced. So suddenly there's a big management process that's kicking in thinking about solar as very material to the way that we're running the grid. EV is kind of the same. Right now, if you with the number of cars plugging in, the grid doesn't particularly notice it. There's not that many cars. But in the future, as we all see the trends extrapolating, where eventually everyone will have an electric vehicle. So at that point, we've probably added about 10% electricity demand into the grid. 10% mightn't sound like a lot in the sense it's only 10%, in inverted commas, but it can be a lot depending on where and how people plug in and take energy out of the grid. If it's evenly dispersed, evenly spread at all points of the, of the day, you may not notice it too much. But if everybody wants to charge at the same time or connect at the same time, suddenly it can have a very big swing factor on the way that we're managing the grid. So here we start to think about, just like we're now in a very real sense every day thinking about how solar is impacting the way that we're balancing supply and demand. As EV is coming on, there's a lot of thought being given to how do we how do we manage the way EV connects in a way that keeps the grid stable and delivers the lowest cost energy into users, uh, in this case, car batteries as well. What do everyday consumers need to know and understand about the future of our electricity network? So we are designing a network that is going to be able to cope with, it has to be able to cope with everybody having a solar panel on their roof, a battery in their home, an electric vehicle and probably more than one electric vehicle parked outside and connected in. And so there's energy that will be being created at a what they call a distributed level, a home level, as well as energy being created at what they call a grid scale level. So that's the big wind farms and solar farms. And then storage as well. People have heard a lot about how do we manage when the wind's not blowing and the sun's mm. not shining. So that's that storage thing. So again, at a grid scale level, very large batteries are being built. At a home level, we'll put batteries in the home. And then the, the fascinating thing becomes what can you do with a battery in your car? How much can you use the battery in your car? A little bit like how we're thinking about a battery in a home yes. to smooth out you know, when you're making electricity, if you like, with solar and when you're using it. So what should people be thinking about? Right now, um, it's, it's still reasonably early days. So there's obvious things like if you're building a new home and certainly people building apartment blocks are thinking about where to put in charging points and some of that just basic infrastructure. Secondly, we're just seeing the beginning of energy management tools that will allow the car battery to start to act a bit like a home battery and be part of that supply-demand smoothing equation. That's probably a few years away, but as we go into that future, two things start to come out, two things start to play out. One is what will technology do to smooth out the supply-demand balance? Because the more we're balanced, the lower the cost and the more we can use renewable energy for what we want to do. The second is how much will people's behaviours change, you know, and what does it mean in the way we use our electric vehicles? How much will that affect when we're connected and not connected? And then finally, if we want that battery to be used by the grid 24 hours a day for smoothing, to be used as a little mini storage point that we can put energy in and pull it out anytime we want, because if we can do that, we can share the value of that with a homeowner and we can get your costs down and give them the best value proposition that we can. The general feeling is that Australia is at least a decade behind other countries in their uh, update and readiness for electric vehicles in a, in a, um, a large scale or mainstream sense. Uh, what do you see as best practice or where in the world do you sort of find the greatest learnings? So a lot of people will talk about um, – 
places like Scandinavia, like Norway, mm. for example, yes. where there's been a lot of government policy, subsidy, direction that's really driven the uptake. From my point of view, though, and this will sound a little left field compared to what you probably hear about <laughs> in think EV, I would look to the UK. And the reason I would look to the UK is our market was designed, modelled on the UK market. It's a good rule of thumb that anything you see going on in a market design sense and in a products in the market sense in the UK normally shows up here about five years later. So an example of that that's relevant for EV, for example, is the emerging retailers in the UK like Octopus, which Origin now are combining with here in Australia, or Ovo, which um, Mm -hmm. AGL are picking up here in Australia. They're driving a whole new product set that's much more integrated with EV and the other things in the home and very easy for consumers to engage with. And and how that takes off, I think, is worth watching for because you come back to there's a couple of levels when you think about EV take-up and EV management. One is that government policy level. One is the technical challenges of running the grid with lots of renewables. That's probably like California. But at another level, there's market design and retailer products which will have a big effect on people and how they engage with electric vehicles and what pricing plans they use and, and therefore, mm. from a grid point of view, how they're coming on. I'd watch the UK you know, to see what products they're developing and how they're introducing them. That's often a great bellwether for what's about to appear here. Like many big companies, we know that uh, you know, Transgrid faces a lot of challenges, you know, changing climate, population growth, tech innovation, you know, the job of powering Australia's Currently meagre, but it is growing. Number of electric vehicles is just one bit of that puzzle. But what what are some of your other future priorities? So we're really committed to leading the energy transition into that renewable, that that cleaner, lower cost future. So you'll hear us talk a lot about the big transmission lines that we're building. We talk about them as the energy superhighways, and they're all about connecting the regions where we're making grid scale renewables back into the demand centres. They're also about connecting us between states and regions to make the grid more stable. But we also believe that we can't just, if you like, preach to others about the change. We've also got to make sure that we're managing our own operations consistent with decarbonising and and that that big change into the future. So Mm -hmm. we're targeting net zero by 2040. We think about a component within that is our vehicle fleet. And so vehicles we're targeting to be net zero by 2030. We've already got a lot of um, of our passenger vehicles that are either hybrid or we'll start to see fully electrics and we've got some fully electric there. And then the big challenge, like for many businesses, is what do you do with work vehicles, the heavier duty vehicles? So as we're going through that big change with our fleet operations, I can tell you the conversation internally was one of, and I said, well, I want to convert to fully electric really quickly. There was kind of the usual, okay, well, how do we do it? What are all the practical problems? And so we're solving at our sites all the practical problems of how to install charging points, mm-hmm. you know, how to make it easy for people to connect. And it is actually really interesting because that's mirroring our customer experience. Then we're introducing going up the food chain, if you like, into heavier and heavier vehicles, seeing what we can do. So a few weeks ago, many people might have seen we had Federal Minister, Federal Energy Minister Bowen come out to our big Sydney site at Walgrove and launch with us the first electric ute. Yes, we did see that. Yeah, the LDV. Um, Yes, the LDV. And I got to say to you, just as an aside, I follow, as maybe many CEOs do, the company's social media just to see what people are saying. Transgrid gets about two tweets a month. You know, sorry, two tweets a week on stuff. We're probably not the most prominent company. (laughs) Um, 
But when we, when Minister Bowen put up his own post and copied us in on that electric ute, and my kids laugh at me when I say it this way, the Twitterverse took off. Um, <laughs> and I think we were clocking at one point about 1,000 or 10,000 tweets an hour. It was just incredible. People were piling in for all Absolutely. I mean, com- combine our love of dual cab utes and electric yep. vehicles and, and you've got yep. a winning combination uh, there. You, you, you had everything there. And, and look, you know, we, we know what the, these sorts of things are like, some of it quite complimentary, some of it really ripping in. And I said, look, I said to the team, how does Minister Bowen feel about all that? And the feedback I got was, look, he's okay because what he's doing is he's helping create the conversation, yes. starting to normalise electric vehicles. The starting point is to introduce them. And that's exactly what we've done with this electric ute, the LDV ET60, I think it's technically called. Like the first of anything, it's expensive. I think it costs about $90,000, which, you know, for a tradie, that's a lot for a ute. Its range is, is not brilliant. But the point is, it's introducing the first of them in here so we learn. And so we're going to, we're, we're running that ute in our fleet. We're going to start to get a few of the conversion kit ones as well. I think we've got some Ford Rangers coming in soon. And we're going to start to play with them and work out. What are the problems you've got to solve in in running electric vehicles? Mm -hmm. We've already had some early learnings, like this sounds obvious when you say it, but it wasn't at the start. You put a power socket in the back of the ute, and instead of carrying around a little mini diesel generator for all the tools when people are out in more remote sites, we just plug into the ute and run all our tools directly off it. So these these are some benefits we hadn't even thought of when we started to get into it. Brett Redmond, thank you for being on our show today. I feel like you've given us some some really practical things so for not only just consumers around electricity usage, but also for businesses wanting to take this leap. No problem. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Rusty, we could not ask for a more suitable guest to be our meet and EVer this month. Garrick Rollison is not only a relatively new EV owner, he's also Chief Financial Officer of City Power Power Corps and United Energy. Garrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dane. Great to be on. Garrick, let's start with your electric vehicle. Tell us about the i4. And, you know, you're kind of breaking the mould a little bit there in that not only is it an electric vehicle, but it's not an SUV, which we know that Australians are mad for. So you've gone the sedan or the grand coupe kind of body shape. So tell us about the i4 and why did you choose that? Yeah, look, it's a great question because that was kind of the thought process I went through. I had a BMW X3, so I do like the BMWs. I like the the SUV style and and like the way they drive. So I was probably always going to get a BMW and the dealer said, have a look at the iX3. So I had to drive that and that, that was great to drive. But I was kind of getting exactly the same car that I already had. It was just electric. <laughs> so my wife actually said to me, oh, why, don't you, why don't you try something a, a little sportier? So I, I chatted the dealer and he suggested this vehicle. And when you jump in the in the car and put your foot down, yeah, there, there's literally, except perhaps when you've got a Tesla next year, there's literally <laughs> no car that will take off quicker than you. And when you sit inside the i4, you just get a great sense of the technology. It's really fun to drive. What actually sort of prompted the decision to go EV and what was there sort of a tipping point in all of that for you? It was almost why not. Uh, I think as Nadine <laughs> said, I work in the sector and in the sector that's really most impacted by electric vehicles and, and so I thought, well, if I'm changing cars, I may as well make the change to an EV and no regrets. I, I really love the vehicle and so many people stop and ask, you know, both people I know but also people randomly will often say, oh, is that, is that an electric car and, and ask kind of questions around how you drive it, what it drives like and, and things like that. 
tell me about your charging capability at home. So, you know, and what some of your charging habits are, you know, again, we're, we're expecting you to be some kind of like beacon of, you know, the way forward for, for people at home. So tell us how you, how you manage that process. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's probably the question I almost get asked most about the, the car, how and when I charge it. Our house has three-phase electricity, which I'd say to all, all your listeners, if you're getting an EV, you really need three-phase connection to your house. So I've got a fast charger associated with that. So I purchased that as part of the package with BMW and, and had it installed. Fast charger, yeah, works really well for me. I would say I would charge once a week. And when I do charge, I generally plug it in at six or seven o'clock at night and leave it overnight. So if I charge it, plug it in then, it probably charges through till three or four in the morning and, and I've got a full tank thereafter. So I'll probably try and replicate the way you would charge a petrol car. You don't go to the petrol station every day and, and, and top up with five bucks worth of petrol. You, you go once a week or once a fortnight when you require it. So that's kind of my approach to, to charging as well. Have you taken this on a road trip yet? And what has that process been like? And have you had to do a lot of planning? Yeah, it, it, another really good question. <laughs> Again, so feedback I gave to our dealer soon after I did this. So I got the vehicle, probably had it for a couple of weeks, and I was required to do a bit of a, a tour around regional Victoria for work. Went to places like you know, Ballarat, Maryborough, Horsham and, and back to Melbourne. So covering a, a number of kilometres and it did take planning. I made sure that where I was staying overnight had a vehicle, an EV charger at the hotel or motel. So that was just a bit of cooling around. And, and interestingly, in regional Victoria, motels seemed to be kind of getting on, on the bandwagon and doing that. And then finally had to swing through Horsham and, and there was actually an uh, ultra-fast charger in Horsham. And so again, I just built into my, my scheduling of what I was driving a, a half hour stop there. So I plugged it in, walked down the street, got a coffee, came back and it gave me enough juice to get back home. So yes, more logistics, but it was never, you know, I never felt uncomfortable, never felt that it really changed the way I, I moved around. Garrick, it's been fantastic to get you on for our Meet and EV segment, but it'd be wrong of us not to talk about the overarching subject or topic of this episode of the podcast, and that is, can the grid cope? There's lots of things that we've been trying to help our listeners uh, learn about and so on, things that are perhaps in the pipeline. You're someone who's in the industry, and now you're an active user yourself. What sort of light can you shed in that regard and, and, you know, what's perhaps coming or what we need to to better the grid to cope with this? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Rusty. And, you know, to simplify it, there's really two parts of the grid. There's the transmission network, which is taking electricity or electrons from the power stations to the distribution zone substations, and that's when we take over. We have the distribution network, which is effectively from those zone substations through to the household level. So it's really what happens on the distribution network that, that matters when it comes to you know, not just EVs but batteries and, and solar panels as well. So we see our role as the enabler of that technology, you know, whether it be solar PVs on houses so that people can pump back into the grid or having access to the ability to charge your, your vehicle when you can. The research that, that we've seen across the world is that pretty much 80 to 90% of people prefer to charge at home. Mm-hmm. So it really is important that there's the capacity to manage that. The risk on the distribution network has always been that everyone comes home on a hot day, for example, and switches on the air conditioner at the same time. If you can imagine, I think, Victoria with a target of, of 50% EVs in, in the coming decades, 
if you can imagine everyone like me comes home once a week and plugs it in at six o'clock, there's a great strain on the network. So our role is to make sure that we can manage that as EV penetration increases over time. And we've got a strategy around that. And it's about getting the information about how people use it, you know, where EVs are, are rolling in and really what we call hardening the network. So making sure the network's able to manage that, but also strategies in way to deal with smoothing out that peak demand. So rather than having everyone charge at the same time, are there ways through network tariffs, for example, where we incentivise people rather than to plug it in at 6pm, to plug it in at 11pm and run it through till 7am, which may take the strain off that high peak demand periods. I mean, I think fundamentally we, we are comfortable that the grid will manage it over time, but we can't sit back and do nothing from a, a distribution network owner. I think one of the takeouts from this uh, this conversation for both Nadine and I is if you're thinking about doing this, about buying an EV, think about the infrastructure to complement it and get the right people to install it at home for you. So you, you, you're geared up for this. Yeah, Rossi, I think absolutely right. So uh, that was probably almost spent more time working through the the elements of the charging than, than the selection of the, the, the motor vehicle, <laughs> uh, to be honest. But the dealers who are selling EVs understand it well now, so they'll give you good direction and there's good installers. Really, as I said at the beginning, the only requirement as a potential new EV owner is you really do need that three phase to ensure that you've got sufficient power to have a supercharger or a fast charger at home. This has been fabulous, mate. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. And although we've had you on as a meet in EV segment, there's no doubt we'll, we'll probably get you on at some stage further down the, the track from an industry perspective. Thanks again. Oh, I've been fantastic. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, both of you. And if you know an EVA, maybe you recently got on board yourself, email us at podcast at carsales.com.au or send us a DM. You can easily find Nadine and I on social media or send it to one of the car sales social platforms. One of our recent guests, in fact, did just that and we've had him on the show. We'd love to get you on for one of the coming editions of What's Under the Bonnet. News time on this edition of the podcast. We're squeezing in lots of great interviews today, but there's plenty happening in the marketplace as well. MG, bit of news are coming out of the fully charged live electric vehicle show in Sydney last week. Yeah, absolutely. MG already had an EV on the market, the MG ZS EV, but they've introduced the long range version. So it's a bigger battery. And so that will get drivers around 440 kilometres of range, so less anxiety, but a little bit more money. It's around 55000 plus on road costs. Also, MG4, we've been waiting for this. It's a smaller hatch. So it's yet to be priced here, but it's smaller. It'll be cheaper. There'll be two battery options between 350 to 400 kilometre range. I think the one thing, Rusty, is you know, MG has proven that its price and its packaging is a success story here. So mm. it's really hard to imagine these are not going to fly out the showroom doors. I do wonder if that's the one that sort of starts the the really sort of serious tipping point, if you will, if it is attractive from a, a price point. Absolutely. Now, new Fiat 500e is going to be here mid-year. Uh, lots of tech, but for what it is, it is exy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but it's also one of those cars that people love. It's such an emotional love, yeah. little thing, isn't it? It's such a good-looking little car. It's like 
if you love a fee at 500, you're going to love this car. So you might well fork out the extra coin. 52K, I think, or thereabouts, isn't mm. it? Now, we know more about the new Hyundai Kona Electric now too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Kona's proven it's it's a great vehicle, but the big news for this new one is that it's going to bring bi-directional charging capability. So more range, more power, a little less torque, but it's that bi-directional that is the, the real hero here. Yeah, that's a huge draw card. And this kind of, I love this, is it missed our last episode, but Subway are going to create these EV charging oasis parks. You can charge while you're having a meatball sub. Yeah, it just sounds like your dream, does it? <laughs> it does. It's my dream. This is my dream. Uh, so, yeah. So these are being piloted in the US, I believe. So, But it feels like it could work here because it really builds on that idea of destination charging. You know, it l- allows drivers to do something, less downtime while you're charging, relax and smash a foot long <laughs> while you charge, right? Now, um, this development also kind of follows news that Volvo USA are going to partner with Star Starbucks, aren't they? They're going to install, I think, as many as 60 Volvo-branded DC fast chargers around um, several Starbucks locations. Yeah, again, it's that whole, you know, if you're going to be on the road doing things, let's make it easy for people to charge Mm. while they're having a coffee. It kind of led both Nadine and I, before we came on for the podcast today, to think about the whole notion of when you're out and about, you're doing different things with family, friends, whatever. Um, you know, in my case, it might be that I'm a, at a racetrack or doing stuff with family um, after that. Where would you like to see an EV charger? And we'd love your input here on the podcast. So drop us a note, podcast at carsales.com.au. Let us know where perhaps there isn't public charging happening right now, but you think deserves that sort of installation. So my immediate thought is uh, going to Saturday netball with my daughters, for example. Absolutely. I spend a lot of time at the local sports place for our basketball <laughs> endeavours. So yeah, that'd, that'd be a great use of time for me. <laughs> Nadine at the basketball stadium once again. Um, don't forget, for all the latest EV news, only one destination, carsales.com.au forward slash electric. Advice, reviews, pricing and specs. There's road trip info in there. All sorts of really useful tips for buying an EV, plus a little bit of celeb car news and more, which will appeal to you. It's our electric vehicle hub, carsales.com.au forward slash electric. Listener Mailbox. A little bit of listener mail for this episode too, which fittingly comes to us electronically. (laughs) Mandy got an Uber Comfort on the weekend. It was a Tesla, so good to see. She says she loves the pod. Mandy, thank you for that. We're very proud of it too. I've got to say, Nadine, when you do pick up an Uber or something along those lines, there there is a greater presence of EVs now, isn't there? Yeah, that's funny actually because I've been in a Tesla, I, I think probably two of the last three Ubers I've go. had have been a Tesla. So I think that is, you know, they're coming up more. But for some time, you know, Uber have been using, you know, hybrid Toyota Camrys, guarantee you've been in a Camry as an Uber. You know, we often talk about, you know, consumer buying vehicles here, but e-mobility and that future transport as a whole moving to zero emissions is a really big discussion. And Uber has committed to be 100% globally zero emissions by 2040. So all of their fleet, electric. There you go. We'll touch more on public transport and industry in a future episode of What's Under the Bonnet too. We'd love you to be a part of the show. You can email us just like Mandy did or send us a voice memo, a little short 20 or 30 seconds that you can record on your uh, your smartphone and send it in. We'll include you. You can be a bit of a star in the show. Hit us up, podcast at carsales.com.au. 
Our next guest is from Mitsubishi Motors Australia, who is the first automotive brand with operational bi-directional EV infrastructure now operational at its Adelaide head office. That's big news. But what does that actually mean? We've got Tim Clark from Mitsubishi Motors Australia, e-mobility strategy manager and product strategy, to explain it to us in a way that Rusty and I will both (laughs) understand. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nadine. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The first question we're going to ask is, what is bidirectional charging? For those who really aren't familiar with the EV world, I guess, how does it work? Yeah, well, as the name suggests, it's uh, EV or plug-in hybrid EV charging that goes two ways. In effect, it gives the, the user capability to store electricity from an external energy source in the vehicle's onboard battery. And then it gives you the capability to supply that stored energy back to an energy consumer, whether that's your, your home, the business, or something off-grid. Tim, this is a, uh, a big leap forward, really, for EVs in Australia. And I'm sure it was a big project to get off the ground. Was being the first in Australia you know, to do this something that was, was an important thing for Mitsubishi? Yeah, it was really important for us to preface that. We have been a leader in transport electrification space in Australia for over a decade now. What um, a lot of people don't realise is that the Outlander plug-in hybrid has been bi-directional capable since about 2017 and the Eclipse Cross has been since its launch. But until today, we haven't had the enabling bi-directional charger available in Australia. So it was really important for us that we realised the full potential of our electrified product in the market. But to do that, we had to wait for this third-party bi-directional charger to become available. So I think, yeah, that just shows that, you know, there's a lot of planning. These things don't happen overnight. So the vehicles were ready, but it was more being able to adapt that here wasn't quite ready. So what what were some of the other learnings and the hurdles and challenges of getting this off the ground? Yeah, for us and all parties involved, the single biggest challenge was the the regulatory approval required to connect a bi-directional charger to the grid in Australia. So the issue here was that the Australian standard that we needed to meet was really designed for a stationary battery energy storage system. But for bidirectional EVs and PHEVs, of course, that battery is mobile. And that actually meant that it was impossible to meet certain requirements within that that standard. So we couldn't connect to the grid. So to overcome this, we were really privileged to work alongside some great partners such as JetCharge, who were were responsible for bringing that charger into Australia, and and Wallbox, who is the, the supplier from Spain who manufactured the charger. And also key to the whole process was uh, South Australian Power Networks. And what happened between all these parties was that JetCharge and, and Wallbox were able to demonstrate to South Australian Power Networks that their bi-directional charger, it's called the Wallbox Quasar, was safe to connect to the grid and that the Australian standard should be revised to allow such devices to be connected. And then SAPN, with their great internal technical expertise, um, were able to validate that and they issued an exemption for the South Australian grid to connect that Warbox Quasar product into the grid. I guess the flow on from, from all that activity was that there's now a revision in progress to that Australian standard. So that's going through the, the consultation process that all regulations go through to be revised or introduced. Unfortunately, that process is quite lengthy. It can take one to two years. So unless another grid network service provider can follow in the South Australian Power Network lead, we might have to wait a few more years to deploy this technology into other states. Is this the kind of technology that we will see consumers using, you know, to power their own households? Is that where we're getting to? 
Yeah, absolutely. Mitsubishi sees this technology as a, a game changer, really, for EV and, and PHEV owners. So a very basic domestic scenario where the user can charge their vehicle at work, for example, during the day when we have peak solar and peak renewables in the grid. So that's really the best time to charge an EV from a, a CO2 reduction perspective. Then you can drive your car home at night, plug it into your home in the evening when there is no solar from your, your rooftop solar and power up your home without having to import any energy from the grid. So you're time shifting that renewable energy from being stored in the day and then using it at night and saving yourself money in your home and reducing your CO2 footprint as well by doing it. You've just led us there. Well done. I think this, what you're talking about, of course, is Mitsubishi's Dendo Drive House Energy Management System. And this kind of feels like the smart home of the future, really, doesn't it? Yeah, so what, um, to build on that, that scenario, the Dendo Drive House ecosystem is adding in what we call a, a home energy management system to that. So that really is the brains behind all of those elements that you might have in your home, being rooftop solar, maybe a stationary battery, a bi-directional charger, and your, your EV or PHEV with its, its mobile energy storage capability. And it allows you to generate your own energy, store it, and then use it where you need it, whether that be for, for transport or in your home or to supply back to the grid. This feels like way ahead of my time, but I know it's happening now. Can you explain to us the difference between the terms around vehicle to home, vehicle to business, vehicle to grid, so that V2H, V2B, V2G acronyms that people will see and read about? Yeah, sure. Starting with vehicle to home, the consumer, let's call it a home or maybe a holiday home, is disconnected from the grid. So it's off-grid and we call that islanded from the grid. So the vehicle then becomes the sole energy source for the dwelling and you're not relying on the grid at all. Vehicle to home is sometimes also described as when you self-consume, so you're still connected to the grid, but you're self-consuming that energy within the vehicle without it being sent back into the grid. Vehicle to business, B2B, is is the same, but we're talking on a a larger scale. So rather than a a home, we're talking about a building or a business operation that is consuming that energy. And then vehicle to grid is, as it suggests, where energy in your battery is bypassing your own consumption within your building or home, and you're sending it back into the grid where typically, as we do with rooftop solar, you receive a feed-in tariff. So you have an opportunity there to generate an income from supplying that energy back to the grid. From a business perspective, where you have potentially a fleet of vehicles, this could really be a game changer because those fleet assets are typically only useful to a business when they're being used for transport. But imagine now if you can achieve 100% asset utilization because when it's parked, it's acting as a a battery for your business. The, The benefits of stored energy are during the middle of the day when we have a lot of sun, it's, it's really the best time to store energy because then in the evening during those peak periods when everyone gets home from work from sort of 5 to 9 p.m., we see a really high demand on the grid and at the same time, not much renewable energy going in from a, a solar perspective. So being able to store that solar during the day and then put that solar energy back into the grid when there is no sun has such a huge benefit to the, the environment and also the, I guess the return on investment for those, those solar assets as well. The other um, benefit of stored energy that is maybe not so well recognised is in resilience applications. So by way of storing energy in a vehicle, it gives us the capability to move that energy around from one place to another. So we can 
generate and store it in one place and then we can move it and use it in another place. And when you put that into the context of disaster relief, for example, where you might have bushfires where communities are cut off from the grid or you have need for specialised equipment that requires power but you have no grid, you can drive a vehicle to the location and then supply energy that's needed. To build on that even further, plug-in hybrid EVs have the unique capability of having its own onboard generator. So we can charge that battery to full and drive to a location without using the battery and then discharge that as needed. But then we can start the engine and recharge that battery again via the onboard petrol engine and then continue to supply energy in a disaster relief. So we did some calculations on the new Outlander plug-in hybrid EV uh, based on a, a New South Wales average household energy consumption of about 18 kilowatt hours a day. Based on that, the Outlander could potentially supply energy to a home for up to six days. Amazing. That is, I mean, I mean, you said it, it's a game changer, really. I've got a question that might sound strange, and it, maybe it's just me that thinks this way, but is my workplace going to be powering my battery to power my house forever? Are there thoughts around how that energy consumption and use works? Yeah, well, that's, that's, you're right, Nadine. It, it, it does mean that your workplace is potentially paying for your energy to charge your battery. Should I have kept this a no, secret? Well, I mean, at Mitsubishi, <laughs> we're quite open about it. And I guess the, the, the reasons behind that are that, firstly, we're providing a, a CO2 emissions reduction to our business because our employees driving our vehicles are emitting less CO2 by being able to charge during the day. I guess you could also you know, equate it to a company fuel card, really. Instead of filling up at the petrol station, you're filling up at your charger at work. There's, there's benefits on both sides. Tim, my mate Nadine has been almost in George Jetson mode with some of the thoughts she's having today. Um, it does lead us, <laughs> my friend, nat- naturally to when do you think this will be kind of commonplace, this stuff? When will it be part of everyday life for many people that are that are listening? So a couple of things there. I mentioned already the revision to that Australian standard that really is going to unlock deployment of the technology across our, our nation, across our market. So we're looking at sort of 12 to 24 months for that to happen. Second step from that is uh, we need more competition in the bi-directional charger space. The third one is probably the different protocols that are used in the configuration of the charger. So at the moment, bi-directional charging is only possible on DC or fast charging protocol. And the moment we have two of those, the, the CHAdeMO protocol and the CCS2 protocol. The Australian market is predominantly a CCS2 charging protocol for DC fast charging. That protocol is not yet bi-directional capable. The forecast on that happening is somewhere around 2025, 2026. So then when that happens, that'll open up the bi-directional capability to most of the EVs in the Australian market. But until then, it's only CHAdeMO capable vehicles, which is a very limited vehicle set. Before we let you go, what's next? Mitsubishi Motors Australia. Come on. We want to be uh, seen as as leaders in the vehicle to grid and vehicle to home space. We have this amazing opportunity within South Australia to deploy the technology and demonstrate its benefits. There's a lot of opportunity. Having said that, there's also a lot of education needed. So we're working on how we can deploy the education and the examples to show the market why you should have this technology and when it will be available to you. On the note of education, I think you've really schooled us today in a really <laughs> nice, plain spoken mm. way, which is what we really need. I, I think this is really exciting technology and it's really exciting for Mitsubishi 
And I want to thank you for coming on today, Tim. You're very welcome. Thanks both for having me. That is it for this edition of What's Under the Bonnet. Just looking ahead uh, in the schedule next month, times in nicely with Earth Day. Yeah, I think Earth Day is the time when we all sit and think, actually, this is this is bigger than just buying an electric vehicle. This is about investing in our planet and investing in the future, isn't it? So I think it's something that we talk sort of, feels sort of fairly small scale to talk about a car, but this is such a major issue for the future, isn't it? Definitely. And today's episode has in some respects been a perfect lead in as we talk about the whole notion of whether the grid can cope and building, prepping, being ready to do lots of things both with EVs and around our perhaps our house more generally to be a bit more environmentally friendly, which is uh, which is a good thing for all of us to be considering. We'll catch you next time, everybody. On behalf of Nadine, our producer, Kelsey, and the team, it's bye for now. A listener production.